1 Samuel chapter 28 as we begin our series, our sermon this morning as we're going through a series on David's life. And this morning we're going to be talking about dabbling with the demonic. And it comes from 1 Samuel chapter 28. So if you want to follow along there, some of you know from history that there was a character that in Russia's history, um, he was an infamous character. That after a thousand years of the monarchy and the rule that was taking place throughout Russia, all of a sudden it collapsed at the early 1900s and a major role player in the collapse was this, inf- this individual. I'm not going to try to pronounce his first name. I just know him by the way you know him, Rasputin. Rasputin, the word originally means that name that was given, debauchery. This was the guy that, he was the epitome of it. As a young man he grew up in one of those remote villages in Russia and he was known for two things in his teenage years. He was known for being a very immoral young man and he had the ability to be able to heal people, or so they said. So what happened is when he reached his early 20s, he went over to Greece to visit a monastery there, and he had a spiritual experience. They called it his conversion. And once that happened, he came back and he started working himself through some of the different villages in Russia, and he claimed now that he was a monk that he had some official position in the Orthodox Church, which he didn't, had nothing to do with, the church had nothing to do with him as far as training or anything of that sort, but he made the claim. And he became popular because he claimed to be a holy man with spiritual insights to be able to, to look at you and to be able to examine your inner spirit. He claimed to have the ability to speak to the other side, to have communications with those who had passed away. He claimed that he had a familiar spirit that was his guide that gave him the power to heal people. Well, his popularity grew that what happened is the palace heard about him because the Tsar Nicholas and Tsarina, they uh, had a son who was the heir to the throne, and young Alexander, he had hemophilia and had a lot of bouts with pain. And so the mom was getting more and more concerned about her son. Would he survive to be able to take the throne? And she had heard about this Rasputin character. Several people in the area of the monarchy and the royalty and the high society, they had gone to him to perform seances and communications with spirits and some claimed that he had healed them. So she invited him to the palace and he healed young Alexander in a bout where he was in such great pain, did hypnosis or something, and healed the young man. And as a result, the the woman, the Tsarina, she became very attached to this man. She wanted nothing to harm him, hurt him. She wanted him around all the time. Even though he was very immoral, even though there was questions about if he did anything to their daughters... There was questions about how he had, he had um, abused his authority and abused a number of ladies in the court, but she refused to hear any of that because she wanted him nearby to protect her son, to help her son. In time, World War I came. Tsar Nicholas left for the front. You know this part of the history. He was not a good administrator, not a good general at all, and his troops were being beaten. In the meantime, he had left his wife to be in control of the capital, to make all the decisions. She relied on Rasputin. He was her guide. He replaced many people in authority with his own cronies. He started gaining all kinds of wealth for himself, and things became chaotic in the capital. People had been unsettled already, but now revolution was coming to the forefront because of all the corruption in the capital. And people were talking about overthrowing the government. They did. All of a sudden, the Bolsheviks came in. 
they overthrew. Three months before they did that, some of the royalty decided we got to get rid of Rasputin. So one night what they did is they poisoned him. That didn't finish him off, so they shot him twice. That didn't finish him off. So they hauled him to a river and they drowned him. But three months later, all of a sudden, there was the overthrow. And we all know what happened historically. We all know that, that the Tsar and his family, they were executed. We know that after seven years of civil war, the communists came into power. And we know what history is like since then, right? That communist, ungodly, atheistic teaching took over all of Russia, took over the entire Soviet Union, killed off millions of people. We know how it's corrupted society, Marxist thought, how it has now permeated even our society. One historian has commented about that and made this observation. If there had been no Rasputin, there never would have been a Lenin. No Lenin, there never would have been the propagation of atheistic communism through the empire of the Soviet Union for nearly 100 years. What was the contributing factor behind it all? A demonically empowered man that with evil, evil ambitions. There is little doubt in my mind that Satan is a mastermind determined to influence and to deceive. So often it requires only one individual in the right place at the right time with wrong theology and a wayward heart to bring about the fall of a good nation. Doesn't that scare you right now? Here's what we're talking about. We're talking about, from the Bible point of view, the fall of Israel. The fall of Israel into a serious decline. And at that time, what happened was it was one of their kings, King Saul, who went after the demons, who went after getting some type of ability and power and guidance from the netherworld. Here we find that this is just, to me, fascinating because in the Old Testament, prior to 1 Samuel 28, God had made it so clear. God had made it so obvious, you do not dabble with the demonic. We read about it, where he wrote in Leviticus, Regard not them that have familiar spirits, neither seek after wizards to be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. A man or a woman who is a medium, a necromancer, shall surely be put to death. They shall be stoned with stones. Their blood shall be upon them. He wrote further, There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. Now, you and I would find that disgusting. In the same sentence, he adds this, anyone who practices divination, foretells the future, or interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or a charmer, or a medium, or a necromancer, or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. Now what's even more amazing is 1 Samuel chapter 28. It's been forbidden. Go to verse 3. Read in verse 3 what we find about the king, King Saul, where it makes the comment in the second half, he had put away those that had familiar spirits and wizards out of the land. That's his history. In fact, later on in the story, we read this when the woman that he goes to, the medium, she says in verse 9, Behold, you know what Saul has done, how he hath cut off those that have familiar spirits, wizards. He's cut them off out of the land. And so she's aware. Everybody's aware. King Saul has stood up against that type of occultism in the land of Israel, but now he goes to one? He goes to a medium? He goes to one who can call and speak to the dead? Amazing. Absolutely amazing. 
He had banned demonism from the land, but not from his heart. He still dabbles in it. Now, why would he do that? Why in the world? What would lead him to do it? We're going to walk through his story this morning. And as we walk through, let's make some observations as part of our outline this morning. And it'll teach us as well as guide us as we go section by section through the story. Let's start with this. The tragedy of an unrepented life. It speaks volumes, but watch the the account of it. Let's back up a little bit before we get to chapter 28 to make sure all of us are on the same page. We know about King Saul. Started off great. We know that he ruled 40 years. He's God's chosen man to lead God's chosen people. There's times that under his leadership, he has victories. He expands the boundaries of Israel's. The Spirit of God comes upon him at least two different times when he is in this position. But in time, he came to a point where he and his authority and his leadership thought that he was above the law. Can you imagine some type of political leader thinking he's above the law and creating his own laws? That's where Saul was. Saul, all of a sudden, at one point, he decides that he can become a priest as well as a king, and he offers sacrifice. God says, because of that, you are going to have disaster in your life. But he didn't stop there. He goes a little bit further that a little bit later on when he is told to go to battle and fight the Amalekites to wipe them out, he keeps the best for himself. He keeps the treasures. He keeps the king for his own display. And when he's confronted by the prophet, he says, it's not my fault. The people made me do it. Can you imagine a leader blaming others for their decisions? It's amazing. So here's what happens. He repents and says, I am so sorry. Please, God, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. Don't take away the kingdom. But the story goes on. David gets in battle with Goliath later on, and David kills Goliath. Saul becomes jealous of David because they're singing about David and his greatness. And Saul's jealousy becomes to a point where he's becoming angry to the point that he becomes bitter. So in time, what he wants to do is he wants to kill David, tries to kill him himself. That didn't work. So then what he does is he says, I'm going to get others to kill him, my family. They can help me kill him. It leads to a period of 13 to 15 years that he chases David in the wilderness. David's a fugitive. Every day Saul is chasing him. Saul is obsessed with trying to get David, leaving a lot of the other kingly details to be undone, which will lead to the undoing of Israel. And so David's on the lamb for a period of time, and as this is going on, anybody who helps David, they're threatened. He even kills an entire village of priests and their families, because they didn't know. They gave David some bread to just feed David when he started off running. They didn't know that there was a problem. It was very early in the time that Saul started chasing. And he wipes out an entire priestly line. Amazing how a king would stoop to that level. And so what happens is he wants to keep after David and twice. We talked about these the last couple weeks. There's two occasions David could have killed Saul. The one in the cave, the one when Saul was sleeping. But David wouldn't do it. Wouldn't kill the king. Even though it would take care of the problem, get Saul out of the way, David would not, not harm him because he's the Lord's anointed. And after David had, had um, pointed out to Saul when he had he'd left the cave and when David left the encampment where he was sleeping, both times David calls out and says, Saul, I had the opportunity to kill you, but I didn't. So why are you chasing me? I'm not doing you any harm. And both times Saul says, I'm sorry, I, I, I repent. 
I repent of chasing you. Come back. I'm not going to hurt you anymore. Come back. He said that now on different occasions, but he never means it. He has this repentant spirit, but he never follows through. It's like somebody responding on Sunday and saying, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry for all the lies I tell, and then what do they do on Monday? They go out and lie some more. And so he's got this repentance. It's basically he feels bad that he got caught. And so what happens each time? He goes after David again. That finally, after 15 years of this, that leads David to say, there's no other, there's no other choice. I'm going to go join the Philistines. I'm going to go live there. I'm going to get away. Saul won't be able to catch me there. I'm with the Philistines. That brings us to chapter 28. To chapter 28 where we begin in these words. And it came to pass in those days the Philistines gathered their armies together for warfare to fight with Israel. And Achish, that's the king, one of the five kings of the Philistines, said unto David, Know assuredly that you shall go out with me to battle you and your men. And David said to Achish, Surely you shall know what thy servant can do. And Achish said, Therefore I will make you my bodyguard. Now Samuel, the old prophet that used to guide David and, and Saul, was dead. And all Israel had lamented him, buried him in Ramah, even in his own city. Now that probably happened like three or four years earlier. And Samuel, I'm sorry, and Saul had put away all those familiar spirits and wizards out of the land. They're giving you that background information. And then bringing you up to date. The Philistines gathered themselves together and came and pitched at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel together and faced them on the other side of the valley in Gilboa. And when Saul saw the host of the Philistines, what's your Bible say? And, and what else? Oh, his heart greatly trembled. The word is earthquake. He had an earthquake in his heart. Okay? And when Saul inquired of the Lord... What's the most amazing phrase there? The Lord will answer him. Wow, amazing. Absolutely amazing. As we just read, they attack. The Philistines come in force. Why? Well, think it through. Saul is old. He's vulnerable. Saul has been so busy hunting after David, he's not protected the borders. As a result, when the invasion comes, they go deep into Israel, all the way up to Shunem and to the Mount of Gilboa. They get into the heartland of Israel. Can you imagine a ruler not protecting the borders? So what happens then, many of the Jews, they start leaving. The armies, they're scattering, they're leaving. So the Jews are vulnerable according to the Philistines. This is our moment. We're going in. Saul doesn't even have his very best general. His best general, David, is on our side. So let's go after him. And when Saul sees it, he's terribly afraid. He quakes like the Mount Sinai quaked when God came to the Mount. Same word. And so here he is. His counselor is dead. He's just beside himself. And the tragedy is God doesn't answer him. God doesn't answer him. Here's this guy who's the king of God's people. Here's the guy that had the spirit of God come upon him. Here's the guy that was guided by a prophet in the past. Here's a guy because he kept on dabbling with anger and hatred and disobedience. God comes to a point that God doesn't answer him. That's amazing. It's amazing that even though he started off well, even though all these years have gone by, that even though when he claimed to be repenting, God doesn't answer. He's come to a point that the Lord would no longer listen to him when he prayed. That's the tragedy of an unrepentant heart. Where you come to a point where God says, I'm done. 
I'm not listening anymore. Is there ever a time that it happens in our era that God will no longer listen to somebody? I'll give you a couple passages. Psalm 66. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. It's not that God in his omniscient, in his omnipresence can't hear you. It's that God will not listen to you. Does it ever happen that God says to even somebody who is part of God's people, somebody in authority it could be, that God would say, that's it. Time's done. I'm not listening to you. Proverbs talks about that. Proverbs chapter 1 has an entire chapter that is written with the idea of people who are going astray. I pick up. Listen, if you, don't, if you want to read and follow, go to Proverbs 1. Otherwise, listen to this, what he says. Because, he calls them, he says, turn at my reproof. Behold, I'll pour out my spirit upon you. I will make known my words unto you. But because I have called and you refused, I have stretched out my hand and no man regarded. But you have sought at, at not all, you, none of my counsel and would none of my reproof when your fear comes as desolation. Your destruction comes as a whirlwind. When distress and anguish cometh upon you, then shall they, they call upon me, but I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me. For that they hated my knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would nothing, had nothing to do with my counsel. They despised my reproof. Therefore shall they eat of the fruit of their own way and be filled with their own devices. For the turning away of the simple shall slay them. The prosperity of the fools shall destroy them. But whoso listens or hearkeneth unto me shall dwell safely and shall be quiet from the fear of evil. That's powerful verses. As somebody preached, I heard from the South, them is scary verses. That all of a sudden God says, you could come to a point where I will no longer listen to you. My question that comes to my mind is, when is that cutoff point? When, how many messages do you have to hear? How many sermons? How many times do you get to continue to disobey God, to reject God, where he finally says, that's it, I'm done. I'm not going to listen. I don't know. I suspect it may be different for different ones of us, depending upon how much knowledge we have of the Word of God, because to whom much is given, much is required. For the Pharisees, the Sadducees, it was going to be greater judgment because they knew better. For a lot of you sitting here, you know better. You've been saved a long time. And if God has been reproving and challenging and saying to you, you need to make some changes. When are you going to listen? When are you going to repent and say, he's right, I've got to stop that? When are you going to say, okay, he's right, I've got to work on my family? When is the change going to come? When, when, when is God going to say, that's it, you've gone too far? I don't know the limit, but this I know. I know that he says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy upon him for he will abundantly pardon. For you, for me, that speaks volumes to say, hey, 
Today is the day that we respond. If we need to make change, we make it now. We don't wait any longer. That's the tragedy of the unrepentant individual. Should we take a second look here? Let's talk about something else in the text. Let's talk about the reality of the unseen world, the spirit world. Here we have the text as we go on that what happened is God doesn't listen to him. So go down to verse 7. Then said Saul to his servants, Seek me a woman that has a familiar spirit, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants knew where somebody was. Even though they've been after them and trying to cut them off from the land, they know somebody's there. Behold, there is a woman that has a familiar spirit at Endor. That's about six to eight miles from where they are encamped right now. He can make it shortly in the evening. So they pack up and they go there. And as they go there, the plan is, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to find this medium. She's going to bring the, the, uh, the spirit up that I want to speak to, but he disguises himself, okay? He doesn't want her to recognize him. Why not? He just killed off all of her cronies, okay? So if she recognizes him, she's not going to do the seance. She's going to run out the back door. So he dresses up in some way to disguise himself. And when he gets there, what happens is she asks, hey, what do you want? And, and he says, I want you to, uh, to bring up somebody that I shall name. He doesn't name the name yet. He says, can you bring up a spirit for me? Now, her first reaction is, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do this. Haven't you heard what Saul has done? Saul has killed people. Now, she doesn't want to get caught in a sting operation. She doesn't know. I think there might be a little bit more to this. I wonder if she isn't thinking, this might be Saul. The reason I say that, do you remember Saul's description earlier in the story? Saul was head and shoulders above all the people. How do you disguise height? Okay, how does he do that coming in there? And so she very well may have had some suspicions. They're going to be, they're going to be absolutely, you know, it's going to be confirmed in just a few moments. But what happens in the text is he says, I want you to bring somebody up. And he tells her, he tells her, this is amazing to me. He swore by the Lord that she shall not be harmed. What are you doing bringing God into this situation? You who have denied the Lord, you who have disobeyed the Lord, you who can't get God talking to you because of your ungodly lifestyle, you're bringing God into the conversation? You're swearing by the name of the Lord? Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Who should I conjure up? I want you to bring up Samuel. He doesn't say it, but his old friend, his old guide. And so as the story goes on, it's, it's, to me, I, I, and you read it right now up on the wall, he didn't listen to Samuel before, but now he wants to hear him. He didn't want to listen to the prophet of God before, but now that he's in trouble, now I want. D- does that ever happen today? People want nothing to do with Bible that you share with them. They don't want to talk to, to any kind of a preacher. They don't want to come to church until all of a sudden disaster strikes. And when disaster strikes, tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me, so I can get out of the problem. 
And so then the conversation goes. What happens is the story, it goes on, and we'll read it a little bit, that he says then uh, in verse 12, the woman, uh, let's go verse 11, whom shall I bring up to thee? And he said, bring me up Samuel. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried with a loud voice. Uh, can I put the Hebrew translation there? She screamed. Okay, she screamed loudly. And the woman spoke to Saul, saying, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. And the king said, Be not afraid, for what, you, what did you see? The woman said, I saw gods ascending out of the earth. He said, And what form is he? And she said, An old man comes up. He is covered with a mantle. And Saul perceived that it was Samuel. And he stooped his face to the ground and bowed himself. And Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disquieted me to bring me up? And Saul said, I am in sore distress. The Philistines are making war against me. God has departed from me and answers me no more, neither by the prophets nor by the dreams. Therefore I have called you, that you may make known unto me what I'm supposed to do. Then said Samuel, Wherefore have you asked of me, seeing the Lord is departed from you and is become your enemy? Wow. And the Lord has done to him as he spake by me. For the Lord has rent the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, even to David. Because you obeyed not the voice of the Lord, nor executed his fierce wrath upon the Amalekites, therefore the Lord hath done this thing unto thee this day. In, um, in First Chronicles, that records the same event, it adds something else. And because you called upon a medium... Okay, that comes into play in, in the first Chronicles that mentions the same idea. So what we have here is that whole thing that we've unfolded. She's terrorized. She's afraid of what's going on. And he sees the Spirit and all of a sudden it's clarified. It's, it's, it's obvious that who we have. And in the conversation, Samuel is going to make it very clear that the Lord, he reiterates, the Lord has departed. He knows that. Samuel also says, this is what I told you. You ever hear people say, I told you so, okay? And Samuel reaffirms, okay, David's going to replace you, and it's all because of the voice of the, you know, the, you didn't listen, you didn't listen in the past, you not, remember, tragedy of the unrepented heart, and Samuel predicts, you're going to lose the battle. You're going to lose the battle. And he predicts, with God's knowledge, verse 19, moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow, you and your sons, they're going to be with me. You're going to be dead. And the Lord shall also deliver the host of Israel into the hand. What would you do if you knew you would die tomorrow? What would you do? This man, it's, it's an amazing story. It's an absolutely amazing story. How this guy hears all this information. Now, before I go any further, we need to answer a couple questions. Who was this spirit that's talking? There's different viewpoints. There's different ideas from different scholars. There's different commentaries who have different ideas. And I need to make you aware of them so that you can have a, a good understanding or you can make your own conclusion. Here's what some people say is happening in this text. Some say this is just a hoax. It's all a hoax. The woman is doing her normal thing of pretending. This woman is doing her normal thing of ripping off a customer and doing what is we know a lot, that we see a lot in the spirit world, that especially you know, a generation ago there was a lot of seances, a lot of that done, that was all gimmickry. And they're saying, some will say, this is all it was. 
It was all done to fool Saul. I don't believe that is the right answer for a couple reasons. I, I think it's something happened that's real. I don't think it's a hoax because she responds very surprised. She's afraid. She's terrorized by what happened. She wasn't in control. She lost control. I don't think in this case because it really seems to me that as the whole story just unfolds that there is some type of spirit that came up out of the ground for real and this spirit talked to Saul and Saul talked to it. There was communication. That's the way I see the story unfolding and it seems simple the way it's presented. That there's conversation. That it's, it wasn't all through the medium. There was actual conversation, Samuel and Saul. The way it simply reads. There's others that say this. They say it's a demon that's impersonating a person that has passed away. And they say this really isn't Samuel, this is a demon. Um, with that in mind, here are the reasons why they say that. Okay? Because they say God would never let those in paradise, those in heaven, be disturbed by somebody like a witch. Why have you disquieted me, he says. Um, some would say, uh, would respond, they say, the spirits of the dead, the, the, I should have put this one with the negative. I, I'm sorry, I have this flipped. Um, they, they say the idea that spirits get the opportunity to be able to come out. And they would look and say that it happened. There was another time in Scripture where uh, spirits were able to roam, but demons could off also imitate and do that because they are angels of light. They do imitate. They do, um, they do present themselves in a good light at times. And so demons are given that way. There are some that would say that when demons do this, they mimic people. And they do that to confuse. And so they would argue that, that direction. Um, I think, I think that a lot of what people say when they communicate with the dead, when people say they see dead people, I think this is the right answer. That there's a lot of demonic activity where they imitate. I remember having a woman come to me one time and she said, she made the comment, she said that uh, her uncle, who was a very nice guy, had died a few weeks before and this man, this uncle, was a very nice man, but he was a non-believer. He didn't believe Jesus even existed. He didn't believe in God. He didn't believe in a heaven or a hell. And, but he was a nice guy. And he passed away. Even when she shared her faith with him as he was in his last hours, he wanted nothing to do with it. I don't believe in God. I, I believe that after we die, we just kind of, everybody goes you know, into a nothingness or we all go to the same spot. So she's telling me the story, she says, that about three months later, all of a sudden her uncle appeared to her at night. And he was sitting at her bed. He woke her up, and he's in a spirit form, and he started conversing with her. And she knows that it was her uncle because it looked like him, she said. And he knew things about her past, her life, their family, that only he could know. And he wanted to assure her that her belief in Jesus Christ was false. And that he is doing great and nobody needs to believe in God or the Bible that everybody just goes into this netherworld. I believe that was a demon. I believe convincingly that that was a demon. I believe demons have the power to appear as people at times. Angels did it in the Bible. 
And at the same time, I believe demons know a lot about us. They watch us. I think they even watch your emails and your posts. That they have, and they have such a good network of communication that they know about you. They know your weak spots. They're very familiar with those things. And, I, and, and the reason I say that was a demon because of his message to her. His message was false. There is a God. There is Jesus Christ. There is a heaven. There is a hell. And he was giving her false information just to be able to distract her and dissuade her. So I think, this is my, my, my strong opinion biblically, that a lot of times the seances and all that, that that is very demonic. It, it has to be because Jesus, I'm sorry, God told us to stay away from that stuff. It's wrong. It's wrong. It's, there's nothing good in it. Now, the reason that some would say it wasn't a demon is um, the text says that the spirit was Samuel three times. Okay? The text makes it clear that only God knows, or other texts make it clear only God knows the future. The other idea is demons don't have the uh, omniscience to predict and uh, what would happen. Okay? that this had to come from God, so this was a God occasion that was allowed. Uh, it was on the other slide, so let me address this. When people pass away, people don't have the ability to go everywhere in the spirit form. When people pass away, they either go to heaven or they go to hell. Period. There's no purgatory. When they go to hell, as we read in Luke 16, there is a great gulf fixed, so they can't get out. In fact, if you could, think this through. If you didn't believe, you end up in hell, and you have the opportunity to get out of there, what would you do? You would get out, okay? And you would appear to everybody. That's, it doesn't happen. In fact, in that same story Jesus told, the man in hell says, send somebody from the dead to my family because they'll believe somebody coming from the dead. And the Lord's answer they have the word of God. If they don't believe the word of God, they won't believe in the experiences. So that idea of, okay, what about good people, the believers who have gone into heaven? Well, they're in peace. They're in tranquility. There is never occasion in Scripture except for this moment and one other moment where people who have gone to paradise, to heaven, have ever come back to visit the world except for Jesus Christ. So there's a time in Scriptures that what happens is that the spirit, the spirit of people, like in this case, they came back and they appeared. That's what brings me to the spot where I think this is Samuel. This is Samuel, and it's the rare, rare occasion that Samuel appears, the witch, she is totally surprised. She, didn't, she wasn't prepared for it. The, the text says three times it was Samuel. The, the idea that he is giving this message, it's very consistent with the same message he said before. This idea of him appearing is very unique in a unique situation. It happened one other time in Bible history at Matthew when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus appeared and two other people who have died before, they appear. And you have those two prophets. Very unique. It is not the norm for people who have passed and gone into glory for them to come back. Okay? In fact, we read in the book of Revelation when they want to intercede, when they pray, how long will this tribulation go on? They can't. They can't come back. They can't communicate. They talk through God. And so they don't have the ability to get involved. 
So the idea that, of the scriptures that there is somebody that is coming up out of the grave, I think it was Samuel, and I think it's a very, very rare occasion. But for sure I know we aren't supposed to be dabbling in these areas at all. We're not supposed to be pretending, getting involved. And so I have a conclusion here that says there is an unseen world. There is a time and a place where people who have lived, they have died, and they have entered into the spirit world. They are living in either heaven or hell at this moment. They are alive. They are like Samuel. They are recognizable. They are still their individuality. When you pass away, you will still be you. You will still have your features, your characteristics. And that, that age and other things, we'll see in the future what, the, what that happens when we're glorified. But you will continue to live as yourself when you go into the unseen world. I, I know that in that unseen world there are angels. They interact. It's clear in Scripture. They're mentioned 283 times that they interact with us here on earth. They are allowed to do that. That's spirit being. They are involved with working occasions. I, scriptures implies that idea of guardian angels, that they're involved. Thank God that they're with us. I mean, I'm convinced of guardian angels when I see little kids, our, our kids when they're growing up, as they were toddlers, and how they just missed the edge of the end table when they fell. Or something that they were just about to have a tragedy, and all of a sudden, I, I think guardian angels are real, that it really happens. I think demonic spirits are real. I know they are. Jesus tells us that they're real. They are not to be dabbled with. They are not fun and games. Ouija boards and those things are not fun. They are dangerous. They, are, they can be deadly spiritually. God has forbidden that type of thing. Having your future foretold, going to somebody to read your tarot cards and astrology, those are all forbidden in Scripture. You say, I sound old and archaic. I sound biblical. Okay, it is wrong. You've been saved out of that. That you're not supposed to be dabbling in those things. And yet people dabble. People dabble. Researcher just a couple years ago 29% of the people in America believe astrology is a good thing. That is that idea of reading the charts to tell what you're like or what you should be making decisions. In Great Britain, in just a period of time in the last few years, double the amount of people who are going to their daily horoscopes. Here in America... Remington Donovan, who is a, a popular writer of the occult, he says people are turning to tarot, astrology, and meditation more than ever before. And by the way, just to give you some statistics, in the last three years, the increase is enormous because people are feeling insecure is the answers that they give. 1990, in America, professing, proclaiming, practicing wishes, eight, witches, 8,000. Then it grew to 340,000. The recent numbering was over a million and a half growing. Now, in universities, you can't get a degree in occult. But I went online, did some little research, and 18 of the major universities in America offer a degree, not in occult, but they call it folklore. Okay? They use a different term. Okay? It's not occult. But here is the course description or the degree description. 
They are popular classes introducing students of religious studies into the application of witchcraft, magic, and the occult. That's dangerous stuff, folk. That is dangerous stuff. That, that is real. You're dabbling in a real element that means you harm and deception. In the spirit world, we got God. We got heaven. We've got the Jesus Christ, the spirit. We have, we have those entities. There is a reality of an unseen world as presented here in this story. Let, let's go to another thought. The tragedy of the unrepentant, the reality of the unseen world, which leads to this. Okay, It leads to number three, the penalty of an unbroken heart. The penalty of an unbroken heart. What we mean by that is this. When he hears this message, we read in the text, if you follow along a little bit further, that all of a sudden he hears Samuel's message, you're going to die, Israel's going to get defeated, and he collapses. He collapses and he says, part of it is because he hasn't eaten or drinking all day. The witch says, please, let me get you a meal. And he says, no, 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 I don't want a meal. I don't want a meal. And she insists, and his two soldiers with him, they insist. So he eats the meal. Several hours there in her company. He eats the meal, and then they leave. As I look at that, that account, just what that story, there is something missing. What is it? The last time he heard a message from Samuel, when Samuel was alive, the last time he heard a message... Do you remember what his response was? He got on his knees and he pled, please don't let it happen. He begged and he said, I have sinned. And he says, build an altar with me, please. Build an altar. And he worshiped the Lord. Didn't really mean it totally, but he was moved spiritually. What's missing this time? Don't you see it there? He never, he never repents. He never prays. He doesn't even suggest, I have done wrong. He doesn't plead with God at all. He doesn't even respond at this moment, say, oh God, you know, like, like we read elsewhere. When Hezekiah is told you're going to die in a short time, please God, extend my days. Doesn't do it. There is nothing here that moves this man spiritually. When, when I asked you a few minutes ago, I said, if you knew you would die tomorrow, what would you do? I think I heard somebody say, pray. I would, you do something. He doesn't. He's got such an unbroken heart. He is so hard at this moment. Nothing moves him. Not even the rare occasion of a spirit coming out of the ground and saying, you're going to die tomorrow. He collapses, but it doesn't move him towards God. Can believers get to that point that they are so hardened that no matter what is presented to them, they are just stone cold spiritually? Does it ever happen? May may I rephrase it? Has it, is it happening to you? The penalty of the unbroken heart. The penalty of the heart that all of a sudden what happens is the story goes on. 
We, we read what happens in the next few verses. The Philistines gathered in verse 29 to all their armies and Israel pitched by the fountain which is in Jezreel. Verse 2, the lords of the Philistines passed by the hundreds and then we hear a little bit more. We're going to chapter 31 and we pick up again. The Philistines fought against Israel. The men of Israel fled from before the Philistines, fell down slain in Mount Goboa and the Philistines followed hard upon Saul, upon his sons. They slew Jonathan and Abinadab, Melchiashua and all of his sons and the battle went sore against Saul. The archers hid him. He was sore wounded of the archers and he said unto his armor bearer draw your sword. Thrust me through therewith. Let not these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and abuse me. But his armor bearer would not for he was sore afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword and fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that he was dead he fell likewise upon his sword and died with him. And we keep on reading as we go through the end of this chapter so Saul died. His three sons, his armor bearer, and all his men that same day. Hey, listen, he couldn't escape death. It was predicted. Did you ever hear the story told by Peter Marshall, who is a U.S. Senate uh, chaplain for a number of years, about the time the Grim Reaper appeared in a small little town in the Mideast? That he was there in the marketplace and a slave from a local household was sent downtown to buy a number of household goods. And the slave was purchasing and he came around the corner and he came right face to face with the Grim Reaper. The Grim Reaper put up his hands and in one was the sickle and that servant terrified, he ran home. He gets home and he says to his master, I need to leave. Can I have permission to go to visit my family over in Aqaba? Please, can I go to that other city here for several days? And the master said, sure, go. The master said he would finish the shopping. He goes downtown. He comes around the corner. There's the Grim Reaper standing. And the master says to him, he says, why are you here? Why did you try to get rid of my servant? He says, oh, I didn't try to get rid of your servant. He says, I was surprised by your servant because I have an appointment with him tonight in Aqaba. You can't escape. Saul, you can't escape. Here it is that all of a sudden Saul is going to face death and he does. He dies that day. And then what happens is after he's dead, we read a little bit further in the text. It came to pass on the morrow when the Philistines came to strip the slain. They found Saul and his sons fallen in the mount. They cut off his head. They stripped off his armor. They sent it into the land of the Philistines round about to publish to the house of their idols and among the people. And they put his armor in the house of Ashtaroth. They fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. But then some bold Jews we read about, they heard of that which the Philistines had done to Saul. All the valiant men, they rose by night. They took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall. They came, they burned them, they took their bones and buried them under a tree and they fasted for seven days. But, I didn't read this part, back in verse 7, when the men of Israel that were on the other side of the valley and they that were on the other side of Jordan saw that the army of Israel fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook the cities and fled and the Philistines came and dwelt in, in them all. Everything that Saul had gained, all the lands that he had gotten before, everything's lost. Israel is all of a sudden, they're, they're ready to be destroyed. The Philistines are occupying, even in the heartland of Israel. It'll lead to seven years of civil war, but that's it. Dark days for Israel. Dark, dark, dark days. Part of the penalty upon Saul. Now all of this is written for our example, for us to learn. What do I learn from this man's life? What does it teach me? A good beginning is no guarantee of a good ending. You've got to keep on keeping on. Be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. 
Our choices have consequences. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he reap. We ought to obey the Lord no matter who we are. None of us matured to the point, we are elevated to the point where we don't need to obey the Lord. He is the Lord God. We are not above Him. If you need to but have not done so, repent while there is still time. Do not delay. Do not stop. If you have, if you have stolen if you are involved in some immorality, if you are an individual who is, who is turning to drink or drugs, repent. If you are thinking of destroying your marriage and stopping it, repent. Repent. Don't go any further. If you're thinking of getting involved in some style of, of immorality to show you love that person, repent. Don't go any further. Listen to the word of the Lord. Be ye holy as I am holy because there is an end to God's patience. You don't want to expire it. You don't want that to happen. I want to close with this thought. There is one final thought. There is the certainty of the Lord still working. And I say that in general based upon what happens at the end of chapter 1. Or uh, 1 Samuel. The book of 1 Samuel. The book ends with death, disaster, division. If you're reading it as a novel, you go, oh man, oh man, this is, this is awful. And it is awful. But then you come to 2 Samuel. The book continues, and you read in 2 Samuel the story, it came to pass after the death of Saul, David. David. And it talks about David returning, getting back in the fight. And as the story unfolds in 2 Samuel, within a few short years, Israel is restored. They're back on top. They will experience their best years, their golden years. Their 80 golden years are just around the corner. Why is that? Because of these truths. Keep in mind that when, where God's people fail, God, it, he doesn't fail. Nothing of God is destroyed when Saul is destroyed. God is still powerful. God will still keep his word to the nation of Israel. When dark days surround us, God is still on the throne. Now, I don't know if you feel that we're in dark days, that we're in times where there's all kinds of calamity around us. I don't, I, I don't want to watch the news anymore. It just is so discouraging. But God is still on the throne. God is still on the throne. He is still the Lord. He is the God. He can still work in hearts. God can still create revival. God can still bring people to salvation. Maybe, maybe that's what's going to happen to us. Maybe we will go into a persecution time. A time when all of a sudden there's bloodshed for the cause of Christ. But God is still in control. God will still be on the throne and oftentimes the blood of the martyrs is what is going to bring forth a real harvest. Maybe that's what's ahead for us. No matter what it is, God is still on the throne. I look at this and I understand that eventually God will bring about what he has promised. Israel will rise up. David will be on the throne. Even though at that moment all the people run, they, they have no hope, it seems useless, God's promises come to pass. God's promises for us that says that there is going to be victory in Jesus Christ, it will happen. There will be a time that God is going to be exalted by all nations. 
that God will bring the glory to himself, that we will stand before his throne and we will be able to cast our crowns before him. We ought not give up now. But do you feel like it some days? Yeah. But the Lord is still going to fulfill his word. He will still answer your prayers. He will not forsake you. He will use you. He will work in you. He will create a good work in you. What a blessing to know that God is still on the throne. Now, you've got to be on the victor side. How do you do that? How do you get on God's side? You need to remember this passage. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believe in him, that's what you need to do. You need to believe in Jesus Christ as the one and only to get you to heaven. That he died, buried, resurrected to give you forgiveness and eternal life. It's not by baptism. It's not by good works. It's not by giving money. It's not by going to a church or being a part of this church or any kind of denomination. It's through a relationship with Jesus Christ as your Savior. That starts when you repent and ask him to forgive you of all sins and to give you his gift of eternal life. And he says that whosoever believes shall not perish, but what's he going to give them? Everlasting life. He that believes on the Son is not condemned. But he that believes not, you're already condemned. You're condemned because you have not believed on Jesus Christ. If you are believing in a church, yourself, your parents, your money, your good works, you're condemned already. You need to turn and ask Christ to be your Savior. You need to remember the tragedy of an unrepentant heart. There is a point where God's patience wears out. Don't let it wear out for you. Call upon him while he may be found. Today is the day you call upon Christ.